Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? You know, one of the best things about this show is that it allows people to listen in and decide do they want to change some behavior that is not working for them or not working for their family? And so, Russell obviously knows that he needs to change that because he's never happy. And he's always thinking of somebody else. And, you know, sexual addiction has to do with preoccupation and inability to control and escalation. Things always get worse. And if you feel like you're a sex addict, tonight we're going to be talking with Erica Garza, who's the author of the memoir, Getting Off, a Chronicle of Her Journey Through Sex and Love Addiction, then it's important for you to decide are you willing to change, and what measures are you willing to go to to make that change? I have a caller on the line, and I know that he happens to have a specific situation that is upsetting to himself and to his spouse. So welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about the problem. What are the issues that you're facing? Okay, my name is Bob. I've been uh, struggling with sexual addiction or uh, being, I've been struggling with it for about 40 years, but um, working on it for about 19. In that time, okay. I've had uh, four big relapses, and uh, at one point, five years of sobriety, which means uh, no masturbation or looking at porn. And right. Uh, and right now, I've got about four and a half years of sobriety. Okay. That's a good and amount I'm of like, time. And you said, again, your name is Dawn? Yeah. Okay. So good job. Four and a half years, no masturbation, no acting out. So what's the issue? Well, the issue is um, 
Well, I, I'm also um, have what attention deficit disorder, or so I've been mm-hmm. told. Most sex addicts do. Continue. Right. Uh-huh. And um, so what happens when I get stressed or, or really tired, um, I'll lose focus, uh, essentially. So I'll, 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 like, realize where I am, and, and I'm looking right at, say, a, a girl or a girl's body part, and then I'm, I feel ashamed. Because okay, so if I understand you and... You'll, you, because you have attention deficit disorder, and I said most addicts do, and what I really mean by that is that it's been hard for us to determine whether somebody with sex addiction has difficulty with focus or if because you've looked at, at pornography for so long and acted out for so long, you have trained your brain not to be focused. But regardless, your issue is that you find yourself looking at body parts, correct? Yeah, very rarely. It's under times okay. of, of of stress, and and when I realize it, I w- I'm not even thinking anything. And okay. Other than when I notice, it's like, oh, great, because it's. It's uh, the opposite of what I want to be doing. Absolutely. So you said when you're stressed that your mind and eyes will wander to a woman and a body part and that that presents a problem for you personally. And I happen to know because your wife had contacted me that it also bothers her. Is that accurate? It yeah. does bother her, and rightfully so. Okay, and so I know she had said it's almost as if Don is in a trance, a trance-like state where he doesn't even know what he's doing. He's zoned out. Is that accurate? No, that's it, and I'm constantly uh-huh. fighting to stay present. Well, and I'm so glad that you do because truly an addict in recovery really does stay in the moment and they stay present. You know, sometimes it is more than just alleviating the sexually addictive behavior. It's really fine-tuning it so that, for instance, you don't lie at all about anything or you don't zone out because that does make you susceptible. It makes you susceptible to acting out. And so, you know, I know that I thought when I got the original email, I said to myself, well, I wonder if he's practicing the three-second rule. And for any of our listeners that's just tuning in and they may not know what the three-second rule is, it's when you notice that you're participating in a negative behavior, you stop yourself, you redirect yourself to something totally unrelated to the woman, And then you come back and you pay attention to something that means something to you. Your daughter, your son, your wife, your anniversary, your lake house, your bedroom, you know, whatever it is that personalizes things so that you're not objectifying. Now, your wife has said this is a trance-like state. And so I'm wondering if you've ever been evaluated by a psychiatrist. Yes, I have. Okay, and and what did he or she put you on? 
Adderall. Okay. Typical typical medication for anybody who's suffering from ADD or ADHD. Um, has this always been a problem for you, or is it just the last four and a half years? Oh, this has been a problem, oh, my gosh, since I was a toddler. Okay. Well, what about the trance-like state where you're objectifying a body part? Well, and it's not necessarily objectifying. Um, mm-hmm. It's because I'm not really thinking anything about it. That's that's well, good. I'm glad. So you're just you're zoned into the woman, and it's bad enough that it makes your wife feel insecure and unloved, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, here's what I would recommend you do. Then you need to change your structure. For instance, if you're in a restaurant, you always need to be facing the wall. Why? Because that's easier not to look at waitresses or people walking in the restaurant or whatever. When you're at church, the best thing you can do is sit in the front row. Why? Because, again, you have less distraction and more opportunity to stay in the moment. Now, do you have a specific location or environment where you and and your spouse are more triggered? Um, no, no, not really. And, and this last one was we were at a theme park with my parents. Mm-hmm our daughter, son-in-law, and granddaughter. And um, it was a movie of a fairly long day. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about that. What happened? Well, it's lots of stressors. So so we're getting off a a train, as as it was, and, and going through the exit and having to wait a little bit for everybody to get off. And that's when I noticed that I was looking at somebody who was probably about 100 feet away and and didn't realize how I'd gotten there. Okay, so now take take me on this journey with you. This is the morning, afternoon, or evening? Well, it's the evening. It's uh, after about 10 hours of being at a park and walking around and, Standing in uh-huh. line. Okay, and, and were you tired? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tired. Do you find hungry. that this um, happens to you more often when you're tired? It uh, generally it does. Okay. Because it's important to identify what are the environmental stressors that may set you up for this. Maybe you've had less sleep the night before, or maybe you've had an exhausting day. Don, I absolutely know that you can work through this. Now, do you work with a certified sexual addiction therapist? Not right now. I have. Okay. And and what area are you from? Um, Florida. Okay. Uh, Central Florida. And, and you know, if you go to Sex Help 
Com. You can put in your zip code and find somebody who's absolutely trained to help you with this because here's what I know to be true. You know, this is an issue for you and you want to get it fixed. But more than that, it is upsetting to your wife and you don't want to traumatize her. You want to make her feel secure and stable and loved. And when you're looking at other women, even if it's in that trance-like state, she doesn't know where she stands. And so for the sake of the marriage, it's really important to get this under control. Now, you two have been married about how long? Uh, 21 years. Yeah, that's that in and of itself is amazing. And does she have faith in you? Sometimes. She says sometimes. Okay, did she just say that then? <laughs> yes. Yes, she did. Yeah. Well, I know. And and she's actually smart for answering like that because one of the things she knows to be true is that she does have faith in you and sometimes you really come through. But when she sees you looking at other women, even if it's not because you're intentionally doing it, but because you're zoning out, it hurts her feelings. It makes her mad. It makes her not trust your coupleship. So here's what I'd do. I would go to a CSAT, or I would go to appsats.org. That's A-P-S-A-T-S dot org. And those are partner trauma specialists that can actually help you and your wife, more so even your wife, to figure out figure out how she can uh, cope with this because when she sees you do this it makes her doubt herself and it makes her doubt your recovery i mean she says okay well he's not dealing with bottom line behaviors but he's not that into me or he wouldn't do this and what i know to be true is if you're fighting add or adhd and you want to get healthy you can beat this thing but it's going to take structurally setting up an environment where you see less stimulation. It's going to take you staying in the moment. You may even have to do something like transcendental meditation, learn some skills so that you stay really focused. The Adderall may be helpful, but you may need an additional medication that helps you really keep your eye on the ball with your wife right then and there. And even when she's not around, you got to practice the same skill. So I want you to give those two websites a, a chance and then get back with me and let me know how you're doing with it, okay? Okay, well, thanks. Well, you're welcome because we are a show that cares and we want the best for the two of you. And that's why we're going to work with you to get you the right resources so that, you know, you can um, live – a life happily ever after. So, Don, thank you so much for your call. Well, thank you. Uh-huh. Have a good one. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. I am Carol Jurgensen Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and you know we have a lot of addicts who call in and they've got specific problems that actually I say are customized just for them. And when that's the case, we try to get them to the right resources because this is the show that helps you deal with your very own sexual addiction. 
Sometimes that's affair partners. Sometimes that's voyeurism. Sometimes that's exhibitionism. Sometimes that's porn. You know, oftentimes it's love addiction. And, and tonight we have Erica Garza. She's the author of the memoir, Getting Off, a chronicle of her journey through sex and love addiction. So I am so excited to have her on because she has a little bit of a different story than what you would think when you're meeting somebody who has that sex or love addiction. Uh, her fixation on porn and orgasms, strings of failed relationships, and serial hookups with strangers are not things we often hear women share publicly. So I want to welcome her to the show and thank her for her courage. Erica, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, this is an epidemic, and we are all pioneers in the field, and you were at ITAP, which is the organization that certifies sexual addiction therapists, and I was there presenting this year. And so I'm so happy that you are willing to share your situation as well as how you found some hope, strength, and recovery for anybody out there that is dealing with the same issues. We Typically, the show deals with men and women with sex addiction, love addiction, and then we also have a lot of listeners that are clinicians. So can you share a little bit about your story? Give them, give them some background, and then I've got some specific questions that I want to ask you. Okay. Um, so I have recently written a book called Getting Off, and it is a chronicle about my two-decade journey through sex and porn addiction, and it traces its early beginnings and how it got worse over time, of course, and then eventually how I found a way out of it and landed in recovery where I am today. Okay, and so first of all, where can they get the book, Getting Off? You can buy it on Amazon, or you can get it at any sort of big bookstore like Barnes & Noble will have it, or you can buy it online through my website, ericagarza.com. That's right. So, again, her website is www.ericagarza.com. So that's the book, and it's been released for about how, how long? It came out in January this year. Okay, and I'm sure that people are riveted by your story because it is so courageous, and it's one of a kind. So t- tell us a little bit about... Why did you decide to write about your experience? I mean, that was really, really brave. You know, I guess I wrote the book that would have helped me, and not just at the height of my addiction, but also when I was just getting started with my addiction and starting to make some unhealthy choices with sex and with porn. And really felt all alone in that and thinking that nobody else was going through this, nobody else would understand, especially as a woman, because I had never heard other women talk about these things. It always seemed to be something that affected men, and so I often just kept it to myself and kept quiet, which led me to feel really ashamed and isolated for a long time. And when I started to write, um, I, I started writing essays online about it, and I received so many responses from men and women um, who were saying that, you know, they were just so grateful that somebody was talking about this because 
like me, you know, they felt alone for a really long time. And that's when I felt like I was doing something important and helping other people feel less alone. And just hearing from them also helped me to feel more connected to other people. So really, I, I did it because I think it's important to tell stories that people aren't telling. Well, absolutely. And if I understand you correctly, you actually wrote it because you know that you needed it when you were struggling and you wanted to help others, which is that kind of 12-step principle of giving back and helping others once you've got it down. So I so appreciate that you were able to do that. Now, what kind of messages did you receive, you know, about sex? Because you keep referencing the fact that, you know, this was something you didn't hear women talking about. So I grew up in a Latino Catholic household, and sex was just something that nobody talked about. I remember when we'd be watching TV or a movie or something, and a, a love scene would come on. My parents would get really uncomfortable and tell me to not look, and sex was definitely a big mystery. Um, the first sex talk my mom ever gave me was when I was around nine. We were passing the local high school, and there was a pregnant girl who couldn't have been older than 16, and she pointed to her and said, don't ever let that happen to you. And then she pointed to my crotch and said, don't let anyone ever touch you down there. And that was as far as she went with that. So I had no idea what she was talking about, but I figured that it was something bad. And I got the same sort of messages at school. Um, you know, in Catholic school, they, they taught me sex was something that happened between a man and a woman who loved each other for procreation alone. And anything outside of that box, they didn't talk about. It wasn't addressed. So masturbation, which I was already doing at that point, um, and then I was already having feelings for, for other women and other girls, and that wasn't talked about. So I figured that anything that didn't fit inside of that box must be wrong. And if I liked it, then there must be something wrong with me and made me feel very ashamed. Yeah, I bet. So, okay, you really got... What most people get in terms of sex education from their family, you got very little. And whatever you did get was more shame and blame and don't do that as opposed to talking about normal urges and cravings and how do you cope with them and mm -hmm. how do you manage them. So you just didn't get very healthy information right off the bat. Right. So when did you start using sex and porn? you know, in an unhealthy way. I started to masturbate and watch porn when I was 12. And I remember after the feeling, the immediate feeling of, you know, pleasure and thrill and all the excitement that comes with those first experiences, I felt that, that deep sense of shame and guilt because, you know, nobody else was talking about it. And I think that, you know, a lot of people would be able to relate to that. But early on, sex and porn and my fixation on it, shifted into something, um, I would say, unhealthy because that same year when I was 12, I was diagnosed with scoliosis and I had to wear a back brace for two years. And I started to feel really insecure and self-conscious and afraid of other people making fun of me. And the only comfort that I knew to reach for um, was sex, I'm sorry, masturbation and to watch more porn. And I started to use those things as a crutch because I found them to be effective escape routes. And I couldn't have known then that while I was starting to use my sexuality in this way as, a, as an emotional crutch, that I was also doing it at the, in the midst of the boom of the Internet. So while I was, you know, looking at, at 
clips and, and, and starting to navigate the Internet, and there were like chat rooms going on. The Internet speeds were going up. Websites were coming out. Technology was getting better. So anytime I feel like I may have lost interest or felt healthier ways of dealing with all of these emotions that were coming up in me, then I always had a new enticing footage to keep me hooked. Okay, so it sounds like you would have been about how old when you really started looking at porn. I was 12. So okay, so you young. were 12, and that would have been about what year? That was in the late 90s. So it was 95, 96. So there wasn't too much Internet porn. I started off with cable TV late at night when my parents were asleep. And then the Internet came about not long after that, and I started to chat with other people, have cyber sex, and then started downloading clips. And it just get more, got more and more sophisticated, the technology, to keep me enticed and engaged. No, absolutely. And I, I know that for most people, they didn't even have pornography in their homes until around 1998. So you started out with um, anything you could that kept you enticed, whether that be magazines or HBO or, you know, you really, it was almost as if you... The more you saw it, the more you wanted to see it. It had really triggered your curiosity and that sense of intrigue and taboo. Right. And, you know, in retrospect, I think, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, in retrospect, I think that that's all pretty normal and relatable, just having those early curiosities around that age. But when I started to use it early on as an escape route, just to get away from these big, scary feelings that were coming up for me around my body and what was happening at school, I started getting bullied because I was wearing the back brace. That's when it, it really shifted for me into something that was not so healthy. Yeah, I absolutely get that. And and clearly, I, I believe most kids have a natural curiosity about this kind of stuff and will experiment to some degree uh, to find out what really is out there. And yet for you, it took hold. We call it kind of a stranglehold. Do you know why that was, what the preoccupation was for you that for some people – they don't have that same preoccupation. Hmm. I guess it was just the feeling of having a clear mind and just focusing on the orgasm itself. So then if I focused on the orgasm, then I didn't have to think about, you know, the loneliness and the inadequacy that I was feeling all around me, the social rejection. I could just focus on this one thing. and My attention was narrowed to that so that everything else just fell away. Well, that makes sense. And so, again, um, you started using sex and porn in an unhealthy way to kind of medicate all those confusing feelings. Um, Now, in your book, you talk a lot about the function of shame. How does shame play a role in your addiction? I did not know how to separate shame from pleasure, and I trace that back to its earliest, my earliest experiences of pleasure and in, in my first orgasm. Like I said before, I had the orgasm, and it was thrilling and exciting, and then right after that, I felt a lot of shame because nobody was talking about this, and as a, as a girl, as a Catholic girl, um, you know, I wanted to be a good girl, and whatever, and what that meant was, you know, stay away from porn, don't do anything bad, don't do anything that didn't fit inside of that little box that I thought meant good girl. And so 
tied up in all that pleasure was the shame, and I didn't know how to separate it from the beginning. And I started to seek out that combination, the shame with the pleasure, in the type of porn I watched later. So I often looked for porn when I was already hooked on it, um, that would kind of turn me off. I needed to be turned off in order to be turned on. I like to watch scenes where women were being mistreated and, and talked down to and degraded because it caused that, that same combination of feelings in me. Um, and so I no longer was able to just be interested in sort of milder, you know, normal, you know, I'm, I'm putting air quotes, normal, you know, sex and porn, what that looks like. But for me, it had to be very violent and intense. And then later that leaked out into the sort of uh, relationships that I would, that I would seek and the sort of sexual experiences I had. I would also look for the kind of partners who would treat me the way that I saw that the women were being treated on the screen. So shame, I think, was a huge part of my addiction and really the component that fueled it the most. Well, that absolutely makes sense. And, you know, Dr. Patrick Carnes talks about the fact that when you fuse a sexual excitement with a negative feeling like guilt or shame or self-loathing or self low self-esteem, that oftentimes that then is the catalyst to want to create more of the feeling because it has both ple- pleasurable experience, it makes you feel good, and it's familiar, it makes you feel bad. Mm-hmm. So, it also sort of gives me an adrenaline rush that combination of feelings, which I think was a big part of part of the thrill. Absolutely. So then when did you start acting out with people? At what age? I started to have real experience, real life experiences when I was 17, so at the very end of high school. And um, it was with somebody who was much older than me, say about a decade older than me, um, were my first sexual experiences. And then it sort of accelerated right after that first experience because I had built it up in my head for so long and imagining what it would be like, and I couldn't wait for it to finally happen to me. Um, and then when I finally you know, lost my virginity, it all sort of spiraled out of control, I'd say, and I started to have a lot of partners after that. Okay, so it was that spiraling out of control that made you um, want to gain as much experience as you could and was there a was there a singular focus? Was there something that you were reaching for or looking for as you started, you know, pretty much uh, attending to as many partners as you could get? I think I was really looking for connection and intimacy, but I didn't know what healthy intimacy looked like, and I was often afraid of social rejection and I didn't know how to build friendships with people. It was all very scary for me, the thought of real intimacy. So I thought, you know, a shortcut to that would be to have sex with people. And when somebody lost interest or I lost interest in them, it was, I was always very quick to find a replacement for that person to get that sort of pseudo intimacy that I was getting um, just with the closeness of our bodies. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And so, you know, here you are, you're going through your adolescence, you're you're trying to figure out what is going on, you're medicating feelings, you're medicating shame, you're medicating excitement and taboo. And at what point did you decide you you really needed some help? 
You know, it wasn't something that happened overnight for me. It was in my late 20s, I'd sabotaged yet another relationship, and it was becoming clear to me that I was having an issue with porn and with sex and with, you know, the partners and the romance that I had been seeking for so long. I'd been sabotaging relationship after relationship, and I was becoming really aware of those patterns. And, you know, I think a lot of people think that the way it works is that, you know, you have a low point or you hit a rock bottom and for me, it didn't happen that way. It was just one thing after another and kind of feeling like you're stuck and living the same things over and over again. And almost like a voice was in my head that was telling me, look, you have a problem, but it got louder and louder. So in the, my late 20s, I saw my 30th birthday was coming up and I'd sabotage yet another relationship. And I just thought to myself, you know, I have to do something different or that decade is going to be worse than the last one. And I'm never, I'm always going to feel this stuck and alone and isolated and disconnected. So I decided to do something wildly different. And I took a trip to Bali. I just read the book, Eat, Pray, Love. I will confess. I'm so sort of inspired by that. And I, I went there just with a mission to sort of take care of myself and do things differently and pay attention to what was happening in my head. And so I started spending time alone, doing a lot of yoga, meditating. And while I was there, just taking care of myself and working on myself, I met the man who became my husband. And he was on a similar path. He was recovering from drug addiction, but also there in Bali um, to just work on himself. And he was also doing yoga and meditating. And he was the first person that I confessed that I thought maybe I was a sex and porn addict to. And he didn't run away. He was really supportive and encouraged me to say more. And I thought to myself at that point, God, this feels so good to be this real and vulnerable and honest with another human being. This is something I need to do more of. And, and so I, that's when things started to shift for me in the right direction. I started to go to 12-step meetings, and I started to do some talk therapy, and I started to write about what was going on for me and just pay attention to what was happening in my head and, and make a decision to do things differently and envision a life that wasn't going to be dependent on sex. Yeah, in some ways you naturalistically or organically started doing some things that we do advocate with sex addicts. We say, you know, we want you to go to 12-step meetings. We want you to find a sponsor to read the green or the white book. We want you to have fellowship, and we want you to do the 12-step work. In addition to that, pray or meditate, read inspirational or other recovery materials, and really get to know yourself and your coping mechanisms, which in your case was porn and chronic affairs. And, you know, boy, being honest and transparent and authentic with the person really made a difference in how you viewed yourself, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I just had always feared that if people found out these things about me, if they found out who I really was and what I'd been up to, then I would be judged. I would be, you know, people would run away from me. And, and so I was, had a lot of fear around just being vulnerable. And then when I finally decided to do it, it felt so much more refreshing than anything else before. And I felt much more connected um, to other people around me. And that's really, I think, one of the best parts of healing. And when you go to a 12-step meeting or something like that, you have that community of like-minded people to help you feel less alone, and I don't think anything helps more than that. No, I would absolutely agree. So what method do you think was the most helpful in your recovery? 
really the combination of efforts was incredibly helpful for me. And I often tell people that because they come to me and they ask, you know, what should I do? And I think, you know, I was always looking for the one solution, the 12 step and the yoga. I did some Muay Thai kickboxing. I did talk therapy. I did all sorts of things. And really, I didn't know that it was the pursuit itself that was helping the most and connecting with other people. But I will say, I did uh, this thing called the Hoffman process, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, um, but it's this seven-day retreat, and I did it in on a re- retreat center in Northern California. And you go there and you disconnect from other people. You you know you can't have your internet, you can't have your cell phone, and it's all about working on your patterns. So you identify all of your negative patterns and where you learn them in childhood. You learn how to extend compassion to the people who pass them to you. And then you work on envisioning new healthier patterns in your life and learning how to implement them. So I would say that that was incredibly helpful just to figure out what my patterns were and how I'd been sabotaging myself. And I also did a lot of writing during that experience, which ended up in my book. So I think it was a win-win situation for me. Absolutely. And so what would you say your core issue was after you did this special method? I would ima- I would say just intimacy and and social social anxiety was a big one for me. I was often afraid of social rejection. And so, like I said, I would take these shortcuts to intimacy. And um, I was afraid of being honest with other people, showing who I really was to other people. So I would isolate and spend a lot of time alone. So once I started to figure out how I learned that in childhood, you know, that had so much to do with my scoliosis when I was 12 and being back braced and being bullied in school. Once I was able to go back to that girl and extend compassion to myself and understand what she needed and what she really wanted, which was connection, I could figure out ways to get that sort of connection and intimacy in ways that didn't have to be sex. Yeah, and you know, oftentimes sex addiction does occur from a wounding, and for you, scoliosis was part of that wounding, although truly your background is not one where you had this horrible, horrible trauma, you weren't molested, you didn't witness your mother having sex as a prostitute. I mean, it had to do with things that made you feel lesser than and created core issues that you chronically had to figure out how to get past. And so, obviously, many of the methods that you used helped you work through things. Um, You know, I'm talking with Erica Garza, and you can go to her website, www.ericagarza.com, to find out more about her book, which is called Getting Off. It's a chronicle of her two-decade journey through sex and porn addiction. And and we're trying to figure out with Erica, because she's been so kind to share her story with us, you know, what contributed to this problem and then what helped to pull her out. So, you know, what do you think about sex and porn addiction? Most people see that addiction as being purely male. So how do you think it applies to women, and why do you think it applied to you? You know, the only difference I see between men and women, or I would say the biggest difference I see between men and women when it comes to sex and porn addiction is that women just aren't talking about it as much. 
And I think that that adds an extra layer of shame and stigma to women who are struggling with this. I know that for a long time, that's the way I felt. I felt like I was the only woman going through this. I'd never heard of other women talking about this sort of thing. And, you know, it led me to feel like this is something I should keep quiet about and, and, and ignore and not work on and not get help for because nobody would understand. Um, and ever since I started writing about this, I've heard from so many women and so, and so many men as well and they all pretty much say the same thing. They're feeling really ashamed. They're feeling isolated. They feel powerless and out of control. And the only difference is that our culture has often told that same narrative of sex addiction is something that affects men. Or even if it's not addictions, men want more sex, more sex than women want. And so we have those stories in our head, and that, that leads many women to stay quiet. Um, and I think we need to change that and, and open the conversation up a bit more because women are suffering from this as well, and it's not fair to leave them out of the narrative um, the way they have been. And I think that true healing will come once we talk about it more. Oh, I absolutely do, too. And, you know, we were all fortunate enough to to get to see the panel of women through the Certified Sexual Addiction Therapist Organization just a couple of weeks ago in Phoenix, and that's through ITAP, the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals. And you all did a beautiful job of sharing your story. Um, so now... I'm going to ask you, how do you view your relationship to sex and porn now? I have a much different relationship with sex and porn now. But in the early stages of my recovery, I thought that, you know, I could never watch porn again. I'm only going to be in a monogamous relationship. And I was really strict with myself, and I set up a lot of boundaries. And I think that that served its purpose at the time because I needed to interrupt those patterns and those behaviors in order to understand why I had gotten to the point I'd gotten to and to make some serious changes in my life. But after a while, it started to feel like I was being almost too strict with myself and I was cutting off a part of my sexuality. And I still wanted to be an experimental, open-minded sexual person, but I didn't want to, you know, do any of the destructive things I'd done before. I didn't want to lie to people. I didn't want to hurt myself. I didn't want to binge on porn anymore. I didn't want to feel ashamed anymore. That's when I really started to to begin another stage of my recovery, I guess, and understand myself a little bit more by letting myself allow um, some balance and some moderation when it came to those things and not necessarily cutting off my sexuality and, and holding myself back, but allowing myself to in moderation. And that's where I'm at now. So I do occasionally watch porn, um, and like I said, I consider myself very open-minded in my, in my marriage and my sexuality, and I feel happier than I've ever felt in the past. I don't feel like I need those things, uh, but I allow myself when I want to um, experiment with them. Yeah, absolutely, and, you know, I'm sure that there have been a lot of um, professionals who said, boy, you're flirting with disaster, and you don't want to take that risk, and so you are one of the lucky ones that is that are able to modify and moderate, and that works for you. And so how did you gain the strength to know that? Because truly that could have taken somebody else down the rabbit hole. Right. I... Make, I make changes based on how I feel about those things. So if I 
feel the urge to watch porn because I'm stressed out or I'm trying to run away from a feeling and instead of facing the feeling, then I probably won't watch it. But if I'm, you know, with my husband or something and we want to watch porn and it's not coming from a place of escape or, you know, from a bad place, then maybe we'll watch it, you know, and that's a different experience. And I understand that there's a fine line there. Sometimes I get sort of hesitant in talking about it because I don't want to um, make other people feel like that's something they should do if that's not something that seems right to them. And I know that for some, that could lead them down a dangerous path. Um, but it is really about checking in with yourself and asking yourself why you want that. And if you start to feel like, you know, you're losing control and you feel powerless again and you're looking for an escape, then maybe it's not the right path for you. But it's really about knowing yourself and trusting yourself and being compassionate with yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I so appreciate the fact that you're honest enough to know that this is not necessarily the recommendation that a certified sexual addictions therapist would give because, again, it can it can start a whole relapse or a slip series, and yet clearly one size does not fit all. And so you and your husband have figured out a way to be able to do that, and it has not triggered you, or if it did, you knew what to do to manage that trigger and work around it. Now, let me ask you, um, how do you view your relationship to sex and porn in regards to your husband? Because it sounds like you're not looking at, at porn by yourself. You're doing that with your husband. Oh, I do watch it on my own as well. I mean, I I, I do that as well. I said that as an example with my husband. Um, but, you know, we're open with that. So what comes first before, you know, it, it what comes primary in our relationship is honesty and open communication. So anytime something comes up with sex for us, if one of us has a desire, um, maybe that we haven't explored before or may seem like it will upset the other person, then we just talk about those things. I don't think that hiding our desires and um, working from a place of fear is worthwhile for anybody. So communication comes first for us, and we seem to do that quite well in our relationships. I'm grateful for that. Yeah, you've been married how long? We have been married almost five years. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. And so how has sharing your story played a role in your recovery? Because I keep saying it's very brave and courageous, And what I know to be true is that whenever anybody helps somebody out by sharing their story or sharing their recovery or sharing their tools, it's a give me to both, the person that's hearing it and the person that's giving it. So how has it helped you out? Oh, it has allowed me to connect with so many people, um, and that has accelerated my healing in a huge way because so much of my addiction was about feeling isolated and being ashamed and feeling quite lonely. Um, Writing about this has allowed me to reach out and just 
meet other like-minded people. And so many people have written to me, you know, like I said before, men and women, and they're so grateful that I'm talking about this because they felt really alone for a long time. And I know what that feels like and hearing from them also helps me. And also it's just relieving to put all this stuff out there. Um, All of these things that I kept hidden for so long. And I, I was always afraid of being vulnerable and people finding out who I was and what would they think of me and, you know, just consumed with self doubt. And once I put it all out there, it was just this, this feeling of a weight lifted, like, okay, there's nothing else for them to find out. So, and, you know, nothing terrible happened. My world didn't fall apart. People didn't, you know, run away from me and, and, and judge me and say terrible things. And, you know, I feel more connected to other people than ever before. And I think that I only feel this way because I'm finally being honest and being vulnerable. And that's what I needed to be for so long. Well, absolutely. It's that vulnerability and honesty, authenticity that really is at the foundation of any kind of recovery, and so you are doing that well. So now, again, to the people who are listening who may think they have a problem with sex and porn, what do you recommend they do? I always recommend to find a 12-step meeting as a first step, Um, and I think that, you know, even if you don't decide to stick with it or you're afraid of, you know, the higher power part of it and, and, and you know, they use a lot of God in, in the literature, um, just to go and be in touch with a community of like-minded people. And, you know, I don't think anything fuels addiction more than isolation and shame and going to one of these meetings and meeting other people who have been there and who can offer you some support and, you know, a nod of recognition when you tell your story, it can be really helpful when you felt um, alone for a really long time and you've been bearing things and you can finally just sort of freely talk about them in a supportive space. And I think that that's an incredible first step to do. Yeah, good point. Now, again, I am talking with Erica Garza, and that's E-R-I-C-A-G-A-R-Z-A. And her website is www.ericagarza.com. She wrote the book, Getting Off, and it is a chronicle of her two-decade journey with sex and porn addiction. So as we leave the show, Erica, I'm wondering, um, is there anything else that you think would be helpful for either clinicians working with women who have, you know, sex and porn addiction? or for our listening audience who might be experiencing this problem, whether they're female or male? Well, for the audience of of sex addicts, I would just remind them that they're not alone and to not be afraid of trying new things. Um, You know, 12-step is one thing, but don't be afraid to try a lot of different things. You know, meditation and yoga, like I said, is very helpful, and finding a therapist, uh, writing about it, try a lot of different things to see what works for you because sometimes one thing might not work, um, but it doesn't mean that that's the only thing. And so finding a lot of different methods could be really helpful for you. And then for clinicians, um, when they write articles and share data and statistics, I would just love more women to be included in studies and in those articles and mentions so that we don't continue to tell that story that this is a male problem. And I know that that's changing and we are talking about women more, but just to keep doing it because it's really helpful for women like me. Oh, 
Excellent advice. Well, I thank you so much. You've been an inspiration to many. And, you know, like I said earlier in the show, we are all pioneers in this field, and truly you are making a huge difference. So continued success and keep us posted on um, where this journey takes you. Thank you so much. All right, Erica. Thank you. Have a great one. You too. Bye. So, again, that was Erica Garza, and she wrote The Chronicle Getting Off. It's her two-decade journey through sex and porn addiction. And she really wants you to understand that um, this is something that that you can master, that you can recover from. Um, We all know that addiction is never cured, but finding the right formula that works for you is key to your success. So I want to thank you for being with me today. And um, as always, we interview some of the finest in the field. I know there may be a few of you out there that that are thinking, oh, my gosh, she's flirting with disaster. She's looking at porn. But here's what we know to be true. One size does not fit all. It fits most. That's why I always subscribe to those 10 recovery tools to maintain sobriety. And I would never encourage a client to um, manage that. But, you know, one of my most skilled clinicians who works with alcohol, when he has somebody who's trying to decide whether they can either socially drink and and not be addicted, he'll say, look, why don't you have two a day? Try it for a month and then come back and tell me if you can control it. Well, most people that come to see him because he runs an intensive outpatient program, that's all they need to run with it. And then they come back and go, you're right, I couldn't control it. And it's kind of the same with sex addiction, except for most of you have already tried to do that, and you already know that it didn't work for you. So don't be in denial. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And remember that addiction is categorized by 10 specific issues. Have you tried to stop, and you couldn't? Have you tried to control it, and you couldn't? Was there an amount of denial that went with the issue where you minimized, justified, or rationalized your behavior? Did you feel bad about yourself? Was there preoccupation about it? Did you think about it all the time? Did it interfere with your relationships, your work, or your own sense of self? Did it come with a sense of self-loathing? Was there withdrawal? Were you irritable? Did you shake? Did you have stomach issues, nausea? Did you have difficulty sleeping? If you had any of these side effects, you're obviously addicted and you need intensive help. And that's why... You don't want to flirt with the disaster 
of saying to yourself after one year, two years, three years of recovery, maybe I can just have one. We all know what happens to cigarette smokers when they say, I'm just going to have one with my friend. We all know what happens to alcoholics when you say, I'm just going to have a beer. We all know what happens to crack and cocaine addicts when they say, I'm just going to do a line. Well, the same for sex addiction. I wouldn't flirt with disaster. I would never recommend that you look at porn. And yet, what I do want to acknowledge and appreciate is that Erica was able to do that, at least for today. I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the, jo- uh, Carol the Coach. And, uh, you know, I just put up a new YouTube video on slipping and relapsing. So go to YouTube and put in Sex Help with Carol the Coach and take a look at my newest video. And as I say at the end of every show, there'll only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll catch you next time for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach.